welcome to Conservation Chronicles. I'm Jonah, and Mariana is with me. Hi, everybody. Um, anything new and exciting to report? Nope, nothing new and exciting. Nope, me neither. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we should get into today's topic just right away anyways, because it's a, it's a pretty big topic. Um, So this episode is going to be part one of a two-part series on the Bundys versus the Bureau of Land Management. And we're going to get into that, what that all means, um, in case you're unfamiliar with it, obviously. But I think I also want to say that this topic is going to be most familiar and most relevant for our United States listeners. But we're relating it to the human-wildlife interface because that's what this podcast is all about. And so generally it still applies to, you know, everywhere around the globe when we're talking about that, that interface. So if you have heard of Clive and Bundy, you probably already know why we're going to have a lot to say about this and why it is going to be two part, um, a two part series. If you've never heard of Clive and Bundy, then you are in for a treat because this is like a real, monster of a story when we're talking about the human wildlife interface and this single story alone features some of the usual suspects that come up in the interface you know threatened species private citizen federal agency and some clash over land and so that's an overview of what this whole story is about yeah so to Talk about the Bundys first, um, since they're at the center of the story. Uh, Most people in in the States first heard of the Bundy family in early 2016, when brothers Ammon and Ryan Bundy orchestrated an illegal armed occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge in Burns, Oregon, in the state of Oregon. By which I mean they broke into and seized a headquarters building for over a month. And... The Malheur Refuge, the Mas- it's a national wildlife refuge. It was created in 1908 by Teddy Roosevelt. It's managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, as most wildlife refuges are. Actually, I think all wildlife refuges are, are managed by the Fish and Wildlife Service. The refuge consists of about 187,000 acres of public land in Harney Basin, Oregon. So Harney Basin is, is really interesting, um, a cool little area. It's a closed hydrolo- It's a cool big area. Um, It's a closed hydrologic system um, where the watershed feeds into isolated lakes with no outflow to rivers or other bodies of water. So that's what a closed hydrologic system is. Um, If you're you're a biologist or ecologist, you recognize that this kind of region is important for waterfowl and migratory birds as it provides a stable and consistent water source and landmark for them. Uh, So that's what the Mallard National Wildlife refuge specializes in, which is conserving those birds in their habitats. And we're not going to go far into the conflict between the Bundys and the U.S. federal government in this first episode of our two-part series, because we have a lot of background to give, and, and that's what we're going to do today. It's important, But it's important to note up front that the Malheur occupation in 2016 was not the first standoff between the Bundys and the federal government. So two years prior, in 2014, Ammon and Ryan's father, Cliven Bundy, which is the name most people know uh, when it comes to the Bundys, is Cliven. He orchestrated a standoff with the Bureau of Land Management, which is a federal agency, and we're going to tell you guys all about it um, in a minute. Uh, 
Uh, he orchestrated a standoff with them near the Bundy family ranch in Bunkerville, Nevada. So this armed and aggressive standoff was the climax point of a battle between the Bundys and the BLM over federal restrictions to cattle grazing um, on federal land, which, which abuts Clive and Bundy's ranch in southern Nevada. Uh, and this battle actually started way back in the 1990s, and we'll definitely cover more of that, especially in the next episode. Yeah, and before we delve into the complexities of this story, like you said, we need to provide some background and context. So first, we need to talk about the Mojave Desert tortoise, um, Gophrys agassizii, which is a threatened species on the Endangered Species Act in the United States. And it's listed as vulnerable by the IUCN, and then it's on Appendix 2 of CITES. So just a little bit of background about their biology and ecology. They're, they're fairly large tortoises. They can get to 35 centimeters long, 25 centimeters high, and up to 5 kilograms. So they're pretty big. And they don't reach sexual maturity until they're 15 to 20 years old, which means they can live to f- be 50 or 80 years old. And the females lay about four to eight hard shell eggs one to three times a year, depending on um, seasonality and things like that. But they have overall, they have a really low reproductive rate. They're found in the major deserts of the United States. So the Mojave, the Colorado and Sonoran deserts, which are in Nevada, California and Arizona. And we're just going to be focusing on the Mojave population of the desert tortoise. Um, and they actually spend the majority of their time in burrows. And that's important because there's a lot of seasonality in deserts, obviously. So a couple important things we need to keep in mind when we're talking about the desert tortoise is that they are highly dependent on rain and pretty much inactive when there are no rains. So this means in drought years, their reproductive potential is even lower than normal, and then their mortality is going to be higher than normal. And then they also have strong site fidelity, and over their lifetime they develop knowledge about resources, so it's kind of difficult to relocate them because they've built up this knowledge over decades, really. Um. And all this to say that the desert tortoise has pretty strict habitat requirements that are constrained by space and climate and just their behavioral ecology. And even seemingly small changes in these elements can cause drastic effects, which is why they're very vulnerable to human disturbance. And which is also why U.S. Fish and Wildlife listed them as threatened on the Endangered Species Act in 1990. So the... Endangered Species Act considers a threatened species one that's likely to become endangered within the foreseeable future throughout all or a significant part of their range. Yeah, so a lot of species on the ESA, on the Endangered Species Act, they receive uh, critical habitat, and the Fish and Wildlife Service officially designated critical habitat for the desert tortoise in 1994. Um, So it it takes some time after a designation for critical habitat um, to be established. 
And to define critical habitat, um, the Fish and Wildlife Service defines it as the specific areas within the geographic area occupied by the species at the time it was listed that contain the physical or biological features that are essential to the com- conservation of endangered and threatened species and that may need special management or protection. So basically, we're talking about regions that provide food, space, water, nutrition, cover, shelter, reproductive sites, um, uh, refuges, micro-refuges, anything that makes habitat for that species, um, anything that that species requires um, in the environment, biotic and abiotic, um, for it to survive. And there are 12 critical habitat units for the desert tortoise, some of which are connected and some of which are isolated. That's 6.4 million acres total, 80% of which is federally owned land. And that's a lot of acreage uh, for critical habitat for a species. Uh, Much of the reason why so much land has been designated, um, part of it is because it's federally owned land, so it's it's not as difficult to designate uh, acreage, but also because part of the 25-year recovery plan for the species recommends that blocks of habitat be connected. So they require a lot of connectivity in order to maintain gene flow between populations because a a genetically isolated population is susceptible to genetic drift, which is, you know, which arises from too much inbreeding and not enough genetic diversity. And that can accelerate a species extinction. Yeah. And, um, Unfortunately, the desert tortoise occupies a region of the United States that's really had really heavy in cattle grazing. And as I'm sure everyone is probably familiar with, the effect of livestock on wildlife in general is probably one of the most controversial topics of the human wildlife interface that um, I could personally go on about because <laughs> if you ask me, cows do nothing good in the world. Um, <laughs> like, just they're just the source of so many issues, whether it's wildlife or our own health or whatever. <sighs> Getting all worked up because I just hate <laughs> domestic animals. <laughs> Anyways, but we're not going to spend time talking about that. But we should note that the Fish and Wildlife Service official opinion is that li- livestock grazing, official opinion about cattle and the desert tortoise is that livestock grazing compacts substrates to the extent that they become unsuitable for burrowing, nesting, and overwintering of concentrated use in areas of concentrated use, such as around water areas and corrals. So shockingly, the US, the, the federal agency is saying that <laughs> cattle is <laughs> bad for some wildlife. Um, that's because that's what the science shows. Um, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife also, their opinion is that the retirement of grazing allotments in desert tortoise critical habitat assists in their recovery of the species by eliminating disturbance, um, to features of the habitat by cattle and just by improving the range overall. So livestock for the desert tortoise, livestock is listed among the concerns for the desert tortoise population viability um, along with invasive species changes in hydrology drought wildfire um, 
and climate change, extreme temperatures, because like we said, they're influenced by um, seasonality and rains and things like that. And then, of course, you know, in Nevada, we have Las Vegas. So another major threat is just urban sprawl, um, but also just urbanization from military complexes, renewable energy projects, and roads are actually a, a major thing because they just sit in the middle of the road and get run over. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, like everything is against these species It it if it's not clear. Um, and when you're talking about all these threats, livestock grazing can seem small in comparison. And in fairness, it is small in comparison to all of these threats. Um, and livestock grazing occurs only over a relatively small portion of the desert tortoise critical habitat. But the reason it's called critical habitat is because it's all important. So if grazing is occurring on this critical habitat, it is considered a threat. Um, However, um, the federal government can retire these grazing allotments and they will compensate ranchers when they do this. Um, And the Fish and Wildlife Service has recommended retiring grazing allotments in desert tortoise critical habitat areas in order to decrease some of the pressure on the population that's created by cattle grazing. So grazing allotments are are really important for understanding this story. And they're definitely a point of grief for both ranchers and the government. So allotments are basically shared estates between private citizens and government agencies. And there's different interpretations of legislative and judicial precedent um, on, you know, who has more rights than land. But the general consensus is that the rancher owns the surface land and that the government owns the mineral rights, which means they have the right to extract minerals. But the government also, in theory, reserves the right to open the land to public access. So it may not it may not be appropriate to say that the the private citizen owns the surface land, but they have access to do things on the surface surface land, like graze their cattle or even buy or sell the allotments as desired. But the government agency is still involved in the allotment when it's sold to um, some other rancher or something. And because the gov- the federal government is involved and they're the ones that gave this land to this private citizen in the first place, they have the right to retire the allotments when there's conflict, particularly when there's chronic conflict between the ranchers and wildlife. So if your retirement, if your allotment is retired, then the government is actually legally required to pay you fairly for it. And whether that compensation is fair or not, um, is can be you know that's in the eye of the beholder and if the rancher doesn't think that the compensation is fair then they can bring it to court and many people do that and so the the reason we're delving into this topic of allotments is because the 2014 Bundy standoff in Nevada was over an allotment and then the 2016 Malher 
standoff was also over an allotment, um, though it was just a different family. So this idea of how allotments work and who has the right to do what is really the the point of this entire story, and it's what created this entire story, really. Yeah, so grazing allotments are administered or and managed by the Bureau of Land Management. And the BLM is an agency under the Department of the Interior. It was established in 1946 when the U.S. General Land Office and the U.S. Grazing Service merged into a single entity. Um, so that should that basically tells you what they're in charge of, uh, mostly grazing. <laughs> but the mission of the BLM is to, quote, sustain the health, diversity, and productivity of public lands for the use and enjoyment of present and future, and future generations, unquote. Um, and this includes managing public lands for energy development, livestock grazing, human recreation, and timber, timber harvesting. But in doing so, in managing this land, they are obligated to ensure that natural, cultural, and historic resources are maintained for present and future use. So basically that they're not depleted or destroyed. And to do this, the BLM says, um, they manage public lands to maximize opportunities for commercial, recreational, and conservation activities. And, you know, that's that says a lot in, in just a single sentence. It's extremely complicated, but it promotes healthy and productive public lands that create jobs in local communities while supporting traditional land uses, such as responsible energy development, timber harvesting, grazing, recreation, including hunting and fishing. So some of the things we've already mentioned. So it's a very natural, it's a very natural resource focused. um, And what I mean by that is um, using natural resources, the use of natural resources, and it doesn't. The BLM doesn't really concentrate on preservation, or as much as uh, the National Park Service, for example. The BLM does have very far-reaching powers, uh, many of which are controversial. Some consider the agency too omnipresent in the American West. Many consider uh, the BLM too powerful. Uh, they think the BLM has too much land, um, and this is part of the Bundy story, which is why we're we're talking about the BLM today. Uh, as we already mentioned, the BLM runs uh, some of the programs uh, we just talked about. They also run uh, landscape conservation, wildfire programs. They're also responsible for pipelines and energy lines, uh, coal power, and our national helium storage, um, which is a whole nother topic. It's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, in these programs, the BLM manages the use of public land and its resources, making, but it, making sure that it's, um, that's equitable and that those resources are not overexploited. And it, this, this agency actually brings a lot of revenue in for the government. And as I said, it's one of the most controversial in terms of federal oversight or federal overreach, as many people call it. Officially, the BLM... Okay, so officially, the BLM manages about 10% of land in the United States. And that's a lot for a single agency. Uh, about And it, in, it amounts to about 247 million acres, most of which, the gross majority of which is in the West. This is all public land, which means it's technically owned by all Americans, um, but in, in a minute, Jonah's going to tell us about exactly what a public land is. 
155 million of these BLM acres are open to livestock ranchers, and they have a total of about 18,000 ranching permits currently. These ranchers have to pay fees to graze their livestock on BLM land, most of which is cattle. The fee to graze, it changes annually, but it generally bounces around $1.35 per cow every month. They call it AUM, Animal Unit Month. And there are limits. It can't go above, you know, a certain amount and it can't go below a certain amount, but it, it's generally around that $1.35 range. And um, so for for a rancher with a lot of cattle, that's a lot. But aside from, okay, so aside from the inherent management and jurisdiction over public land, what does the BLM have to do with the Mojave Desert Tortoise? Well, wildlife conservation mainly falls under the jurisdiction of the Fish and Wildlife Service. However, one of the BLM's responsibilities is to, quote, promote conservation through shared stewardship. Uh, so the BLM, therefore, works with the Fish and Wildlife Service, that's the shared stewardship, as well as with American citizens, that's also part of the shared stewardship. Um, they work with um, partners on land issues in regards to wildlife and critical habitat. And if there is endangered species critical habitat on BLM land, the BLM is responsible for the integrity of that habitat. Yeah, so while we're while we're talking about federal public land, um, just wanted to give an idea of sort of this hierarchy of the way that we manage federal land in the United States. So there's a few, there's a four agencies specifically. Um, so we have the National Park Service, which protects our natural and historical features and is sort of at the, the top of this hierarchy where it has the strictest um, restrictions, the, the most restrictions. So hunting, mining, and consumptive activities aren't allowed in national parks. But they also manage national preserves, which have a certain level of protection, except hunting, mining, and, and certain consumptive activities are permitted. So it's like a, a national preserve is basically a step down from a national park. Um. We also have U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, which manages, like Mariana said earlier, manages national wildlife refuges and is responsible for managing endangered species. Um, and then we have U.S. Forest Service, which manages lands in a similar way to the BLM, um, where it's called, you know, they're called multiple use agencies, which means they're open to hunting and, and mining and oil and gas extraction, some other consumptive activities like logging or fishing maybe. Um, but they require fees and there's obviously certain restrictions. But the, and then the, the fourth agency is the BLM. So there's lots of different ways that, federal land is classified and but they all fall under one of these four agencies so you know national forests is the forest service wildlife refuges are u.s fish and wildlife um we have national cemeteries and battlefields which are national park service and the the list goes on you know wildernesses conservation areas but they all fall under one of these agencies and they're generally only managed by a single agency but like Mariana sort of just said, when an endangered species is involved, then U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service might 
work alongside whatever the managing agency of the specific land is. So all of these lands are technically owned by the public and they're managed, but they're managed by public agencies in the public trust is what it's called, which means that even though these public agencies are the ones that are managing them and taking care of them, they're ultimately responsible to the public legally. Um, But just because, you know, we as the American people own land doesn't mean you can do anything on it or access whatever you want on it. The purpose of the certain land designations is, is to protect it or conserve it in some way and to um, enhance its quality, I guess, for, for future generations. And that's generally something that's in like the, the mission of all these agencies is to manage these land, this land for future generations as well. Um, so, you know, for example, you can't collect historic or prehistoric features from public lands. And then certainly in national parks, you can't collect antlers or pine cones, anything biotic or abiotic. Um, so I think people, I think this is something that's really unique in the United States is that, you know, we, me as a citizen, like I have a stake, a part ownership in this land, um, which is what's so great about it. And it's, I'm, I'm, I know that in other countries there are systems that are similar, but I think we have the, um, the, a very successful way of managing land with this hierarchy because it allows for different um, management uh, styles, basically. So that hierarchy is important because you have land that is strictly protected all the way down to, you know, BLM land that uh, basically gets trashed a lot of times by the public. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's something that's really unique, the whole public trust um, thing. And it also means that uh, these federal agencies are, I'm, well, first I want to say it, it means, as, as Jonah was hinting at just a moment ago, that we are responsible as stewards of the land. We're responsible, you know, for uh, following, first of all, following the federal law, but also just for taking care of the land as well. So it's, it's a point of pride for a lot of Americans um, to take care of this land and to uh, be a part of the management of this land, basically, as as public citizens. And it's a point of pride for us that, that we have this public trust over land, over wildlife. Nobody owns wildlife in the United States. Um, wildlife is in the public trust. You can own your own private land, but you don't own the wildlife on it. Um, so Except in Texas. <laughs> Oh right, yeah. And the, Which is why the I, I think I think this is also sort of, um, at least in my mind, one reason that people love the West so much is because, well, obviously it's beautiful and there's so much open space and whatever. But the reason there's so much open space is because it's all this public land mm-hmm. where anyone can go out in a national forest and go hiking around. It, you know, it's it's open to everyone, and mm-hmm. it's very unlike a lot of the East coast where everything is very private and like Texas as well. Um, which is why I don't like living in Texas. (laughs) Yeah. And at some point, um, 
at some point we should do an episode on like um like the homestead act and how uh private land decreases as you move west um so uh, just to say briefly um since we have time the um after the revolutionary war um at some point the the u.s created the homestead act and um, it was basically giving land to people as long as they used it and um, were productive on that land. But after a while, um, chronologically, it just like it starts to dwindle. And by the time you get out west, um, the the Homestead Act was um, not done away with. But gosh, see, now I'm going to get the history wrong because I didn't bother it. <laughs> I didn't think that I was going to talk about it. Um, but anyway, basically, as you head west, there's less and less private land. So like if you take a state like Maine, it's something like 99% of Maine is private land. And then if you take a state like Alaska, it's almost the opposite. Um, you know, 90 plus percent is um, public land. Public. Or, or a state like Nevada. In Nevada, if you look at a map of BLM land, there's just all this land that belongs to the BLM in Nevada. In fact, the BLM owns or manages, I should say, the BLM manages more land in Nevada than any other state in the United States. Um, I think Utah is second, um, but almost all is just this huge like blotch of paint over Nevada. That's BLM land, um, yeah. and that's part of that's that's going to be part of the issue with the Bundys that we'll be talking about in part two um, is how much land is owned by the by the BLM in Nevada, by the federal government, basically in Nevada. And that's another thing like this, we're talking about federal land. Of course, you know, there are state agencies, there's state public land as well that works a little bit differently. Um, but federal land is is really unique. And uh, I don't know what I'm trying to say with that, but. I think, I think, yeah, what you said, it's a point of, a point of pride for a lot of Americans. It's, it's something we should be really thankful for in the United States because we can just go to these places. And unfortunately, there are those that abuse this right, really. Um, you know, I, in my experience, BLM land is just always trashed because there's not really enforcement on it. It's just often re the really remote land. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, people are just tearing it up in their dirt bikes or whatever, just trashing it. But it's amazing that we can go, you can pretty much go anywhere in the Western states and, and find this public land that you can go camp on. You know, national forest and BLM land, unless, um, in certain cases with national forests, you can't, but generally you can go and camp anywhere. Um, and it's, it's just so unique among um, other land use systems in the world. And I think that it's also just, in in my opinion, it's just so much easier to understand this hierarchy and to understand the rules. And, you know, we have this who's managing what and things. Because I tell you, I've been uh, doing some of this distribution analysis stuff with this, for the saddle bill. And it's how do you, I can't figure out who manages what land, what's a oh, reserve, yeah. what's a conservancy. It, it's just mm -hmm. a lot messy, messier over there. And I mean, I'm sure that's also because I don't live there, but it's just really clear cut here. And it's great that we have this privilege, um, actually, 
So. Yeah. All you really have to know is, you know, what the designation of the land is and which agency manages it. And that's almost all of what you need to know about the restrictions, the protections, certain lands, you know, certain parks or preserves or, or wilderness areas will have like specific restrictions, but there is, there are these inherent general restrictions that you just know as you, as you explore these lands, you know what you can do, you know what you can't. And like you said, it's all open and, um, it's, it's really, it's, um, it's a really, it's a really special thing for us as the American public. And, and another thing is, uh, the federal agencies now in, in part two of this, of this series, we're going to start talking about, um, the Bundys and their distrust of the federal system. But, oh, personally, I, what I enjoy most about, the way these federal agencies work is that they are um, they work under the um, Administrative Procedures Act, which basically um, gives us, the American public, the power to bring a federal agency to court over anything that we believe is arbitrary or capricious in their decisions, in their actions, um, in their upcoming actions and decisions. So I think I think a lot of the American public doesn't realize quite as much, uh, quite how much power we have over um, actions and decisions in federal agencies. And that's not necessarily their fault because there is actually, it is actually kind of difficult to figure all that stuff out. Um, like when a, when a public agency, when a federal agency makes a decision, uh, most of the time we can actually comment on that decision. Um, we can challenge those decisions but it's not exactly like they don't exactly make it easy. Um, it requires a lot of research. It requires access and asking, requesting access and just a lot of things that the American public aren't very good at or or that we're just not. I mean, we don't learn that stuff in school, in grade school. We don't learn about, you know, the power we have over our own government as well. I mean, we're a government of the people. So we don't really learn a lot about that. Um, but you know, if, if you don't agree with an action or decision that a federal agency makes, such as a BLM, you can sue them, basically. And uh, the word sue has a lot of negative connotations, but in this case, it's good. It's good that we can bring the agency to court, we can bring them to task, and we can challenge their decisions if, 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 if that decision is, like I said, arbitrary or capricious, or if we think that decision is not equitable, if we think that decision doesn't benefit uh, conservation or the American people. Um, so there's that line they have to straddle. You know, every decision has to benefit everybody. Um, and unfortunately, also, even though that's a good thing, in my opinion, um, unfortunately, some people can take that power and abuse it. Um, which is what we'll what we'll be talking about with the Bundys um, is sort of just abusing their power over um, federal agencies and bringing them to court and what they can do um, to challenge a federal agency. That that power can also be abused, just like you know any power can be abused. Um, so yeah, so that's just my long way of saying in part two of the Bundys <laughs> versus the BLM. Uh, we're going to bring all these actors together that we've talked about today, the Bundys, the desert tortoise. We can't forget, like I, I just want to 
I want everybody to keep in mind that the desert tortoise is really at the center of this story, especially in the next episode. We're going to delve into the Bundys a lot and it's just going to feel like a real human story. But the desert tortoise is at the center of it. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the Endangered Species Act and, of course, the critical habitat and the BLM. And we're going to discuss how all of these actors clash, in some cases violently, right on that blurry line of the human-wildlife interface. Um, you know, there's going to be armed takeovers. There will be fire, literally fire. There will be court cases, imprisonments. Even a police shooting <laughs> will we'll make a cameo. And in the middle of it all, the uncertain future of the Mojave Desert tortoise, this threatened species under the Endangered Species Act. Who you can never trust with a gun. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. So, yeah. Okay, so if you have any questions or comments, definitely contact (laughs) us. Definitely contact us. Definitely <laughs> contact us. Um, our email is conservationchronicles at gmail.com or you can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram. And then, of course, our website is conservationchronicles.podbean.com where you can listen to our other episodes and definitely stay tuned for part two of the Bundys versus BLM. Yeah, and if you're an international listener, actually, I we'd like to hear from you about maybe some differences or similarities in your country when it comes to public land or federal agencies. We'd love to learn more about that as well. Um, or, or if you have questions, whether you're American or not, if you have questions about um, about that topic, um, which it's just so huge, we couldn't really, we would need a, its own episode to cover, it, and maybe we will one day. But, um, but yeah, we'd love to hear from you about that as well. <laughs>